Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited-time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. There's no place to escape to. This is the last podcast. On the left. <laughs> That's when the cannibalism started. What was that? I was watching this documentary series really uh, today in preparation for today's episode, mm-hmm. and it was called Mormon Girls with a Z. <laughs> Have you seen this thing? No, I haven't seen no, that I've one. I've seen this. I've seen this documentary. It's a, a, a favorite hotel documentary of mine. Mm-hmm. Is it filmed by Joe Francis from <laughs> Girls Gone Wild? Sadly, not anymore. <laughs> Those opportunities were gone from him due to his criminal past. Uh. But his artistry, I guess, is still there. Yes. Uh, but this this uh, this is a complicated story. Mm-hmm. But it also shows me the power of of storytelling (laughs) and how important it is and if you want as many teen brides as you can throw seed at you got to be really good at telling a joke well what we also learned from woody allen i guess so hey what's up everyone how you doing this is the last podcast on the left i am ben and i'm with marcus hi hello marcus hi ben and we have Beautiful Henry Zabrowski. He's on the East Coast studio. He looks fresh. He looks clean. It's great to have you with us. Yeah, I showered twice this morning because we're about to drive to Atlantic City. Woo-hoo! And I wanted to build like a cleanliness like barrier. Above. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> they're gonna sp- they're gonna smell you out right away and just splash you with a whole bunch of Stetson. I'm going in there full of Stetson so they know I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> this topic. I'm going to say is maybe one of the uh, deepest, deeper, 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 one of the deepest, most gaping topics we've ever done. It's the the getting to the cervix of this topic would mm. take a 15 inch penis. And the only person <laughs> I know that is possible that is even capable of getting to the very top of the cervix is Mr. Marcus himself. Mm. Uh-huh. Marcus Park. <laughs> That's absolutely right with his brain. All right. Today's topic and the topic for, I guess, the foreseeable future. This yeah. will be a bit of a lengthy series. This is now a Mormonism podcast. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it officially is. We are getting into Mormonism. Let's begin. Now, some of you might be wondering exactly why we decided to tackle the history of what is now accepted as a mainstream religion. But the thing about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. Mormonism, is that it's got a lot more in common with Scientology than it does with Christianity. Get him, Marcus! Get him! <laughs> uh We do have a lot of Mormon listeners. Yeah, yes, People within the Salt Lake, especially Salt Lake City in Utah, we mm-hmm. have a lot of listeners within them. And what we're trying to do is examine this is, uh, from the, uh, the humanistic perspective. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when you say it's like Scientology, are we going to be talking corgis? Because if we got a corgi involved, are there any 
any dogs involved with Mormonism? I mean, this is a time period where dogs are used as labor and as food. Yeah. Mm. Uh. Like, you can pet a dog, but you, technically they would consider you weak and they uh. beat you with, like, a birch stick. Okay, okay. Well, the reason why we say it's like Scientology is that Mormonism began as a cult of personality, with one man at the top performing his own unique brand of religious improv that somehow resulted in an established concrete belief system. Mormonism is what UCB wishes could happen. (laughs) They wish they could get that much. I mean, they are deeply entrenched, but they really, really believe that improv can take you all the way to the top. And technically, we uh, same thing with our president. He showed the same thing, which again, improvers, they run everything. Everything. And it's very, very scary. It really is scary. Improv is maybe the most nefarious of all comedic art forms. Mm-hmm. What do we say about uh, Jim Jones sidestepping bullshit? Sidestepping bullshit. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I love that country song. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Mormonism, that man at the top was perhaps one of the most fascinating, complex, and enigmatic men of the 19th century, Joseph Smith. Ooh. This man, who essentially started off as a grave robber with a natural talent for storytelling, ended up creating a religion that now boasts a worldwide membership of over 16 million Mormons. Wow. Which is a part of the, there's a controversial thing to be said about calling Mormonism a cult, where the, now it's more established and have changed a lot of their rules. But the, if you look at the essential nature of how it started, it started in a nefarious place, which is another way... Mormonism is very similar to Scientology because we mm. have a man, Joseph Smith, even even people who have left Mormonism because of their various tenets have nothing bad really to say about Joseph Smith. He's right. viewed as a pure heart. He's viewed as everybody else went and twisted his stuff, which is, I mean, we're going to get into it because most sources you're going to read about Joseph Smith are from a pro-Mormon angle. They're mm-hmm. paid for by Mormon sources, a lot right. of it, especially even that PBS documentary we watch. Yeah, which is great, yeah. but it is... it. it uh, these, the Mormon sources, the pro-Mormon sources, kind of the view that they take on jo- on Joseph Smith is uh, they sort of bring you close and go, hey, let me tell you a little secret. Hey, listen, I, I know this is a little ridiculous. Right. I know it is. But you know what? It's the truth. It's the same thing with Ron Hubbard, but it's the yeah. same exact Very thing. Very the same thing. Where Joseph Smith, he was a tap dancing fool. And if Tan Danson took us straight to the top, well, L. Ron oh. Hubbard was searching for the same shit. But I think what we're going to see as we track Joseph Smith's life is that Joseph Smith was just taken out before he got dangerous. Also, Joseph Smith, he, he has the same name as all the names on the credit card commercials that just have to be like, generic white guy. We're marketing <laughs> to you. And the numbers are all zero, but he happens to be named Joseph Smith. I was also looking through the Epstein Black Book recently because they have the PDF of it out. And I was looking through it. And there's like 45 Joseph Smiths. Interesting. <laughs> Well, I mean, another thing, uh, kind of a, a difference between Scientology and Mormonism is that I actually found if you go on the uh, ex-Mormon subreddit, they have a few choice words to say about Joseph Smith. What? <laughs> Not on Reddit. <laughs> but we thought it was a, a very good place to start. We're like, okay, so if we're going to cover all the crimes of Mormonism, let's start from the very top of the shaft and see where these balls were like at the very <laughs> beginning of the bush hairs. Let's get into it. Well, somehow the Mormons went from being some of the most hated people in America, the only religious group who's ever gotten an actual extermination order from a state government, Whoa. to openly running one of their own as president in just three generations. Dang. That's all it took. Okay. Super light. It's like Drake, man. <laughs> yeah. So the big question here is how the fuck did this happen? How does one small cult started in Ohio by a grave-robbing statutory rapist become one of the largest religions in the modern world? Practice. <laughs> is that it? 
The question of how Mormonism has produced so much sexual abuse will become apparent as we go on. But a harder question is how does Mormonism, which is at its core a peaceful religion, how does Mormonism also inspire multiple instances of extreme violence and in one case a full-on massacre? Hmm. Uh, it seems to happen with a lot of these little peaceful religions. Catholicism yeah. at the very basis, besides all the cannibalism, is actually <laughs> like, you know, it's got some good ideas in there. Jesus was apparently very nice when he wasn't apparently. fucking his multiple ass wives, which is the cool reinvention of Jesus here is that all he did was fuck. Cool. But he actually, he did do that, but it was with all his buddies. And that was because they were desert lonely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he had a lot of dudes following him around. And again, if you are Mormon, we are not criticizing everyone who is Mormon. No. This is just an overview. And we could do this exact overview, as Henry just referenced, in Catholicism, mm -hmm. or this is just a human creation, and whenever humans create something, there's a lot of room for error. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the next five episodes, we hope to answer all these questions and more, and eventually we'll get into all the tiny messiahs and tiny prophets that have plagued Mormonism in modern times. Like Bagel Boss! <laughs> He's my tiny messiah! <laughs> Don't you even talk about it. The Bagel Boss Mafia is going to come and, and rub you out. <laughs> but in order to understand how Warren Jeffs and the Mountain Meadow Massacre could happen, we've got to understand the first prophet, Joseph Smith. But before we even do that, let's acknowledge our two main sources for at least the Joseph Smith portion of our series, because Joseph Smith is going to take up the bulk of the next three episodes. The first book is No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. Written in 1945, it is still the only reputable book out there that takes a completely unvarnished view of Joseph Smith, although mm. it can be guilty at times of heavy speculation. Yeah, Fawn had some ideas. Fawn had some ideas, and it, but it is still a, a fucking great book. Yes. It's beautifully written, and it's got a great history uh, in and of itself. Like, Fawn Brody was 30 years old when this book was published. She really? wrote it when she was 28, and she wrote it with two kids, and her husband moved a lot for work. Like, they were moving all over the country. She she had two kids, and she still wrote a book that today is still respected as a solid work of scholarship uh, and doing something that no one else had done before and no one else has really top sense. This oh. would make an incredible secret commercial. Do you remember <laughs> oh, that? Maybe yeah. strong enough for a man but built for a woman? Yes, absolutely. But even though this book isn't perfect, No Man Knows My History is the more human, con-man-focused view of Joseph Smith. And like I said, it's still respected to this day. Our other source, by contrast, is the one that views Joseph Smith as a genuine yet somewhat flawed prophet. Mm. That book is Rough Stone Rolling by Richard Lyman Bushman. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Dick Bushman. Yeah, it's Dick Bushman. <laughs> Dick Bushman. Written in 2005, Rough Stone was supposed to be a kind of light-touch rebuttal to No Man Knows My History. Because No Man Knows My History was supposed to be, like, she did a lot. Of research, and it was a cobbled together. Especially Joseph Smith's early years were incredibly difficult to piece together. But what Roughstone mm. Rolling then did is it's like I can do work too. Uh -oh. I'm gonna do his name is Dick Bushman. There's one thing I know how to do is a work a feel. Oh my God, Fawn versus Dick. What am I doing? Ringing a bell. Ding 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 ding. It's time for a book fight. <laughs> That's the saddest. It's just two people silently in a room reading across from each other, being going, huh. Hmm. <laughs> One star on Goodreads. Whoa! Well, Rough Stone Rolling pr 
presents itself as a kind of warts and all type of biography, but it tends to completely ignore Joseph Smith's actual motivation. It prefers instead to depend heavily on the concept of divine revelation. Mm. Whereas every one of Joseph Smith's revelations that we'll get into in episode two and episode three, uh, Rough Stone Rolling attributes that to God told him to do this while no man knows my history says... This is the shit that was going on in Joseph's life that caused him to have this revelation. Interesting. Now, that means that much of the broader story in both books is identical. It's just that Rough Stone Rolling either glosses over or completely omits extremely important parts of Joseph Smith's history, even though it's still 300 pages longer than the other one. Woo! But it had a lot of pictures. Oh, that's <laughs> I want to say there's at least 50 pages of just songs. <laughs> and to give you an idea of the difference in content, while both authors started writing as Mormons... Fawn Brody was excommunicated the year after her book was published, while Richard Bushman won the Mormon History Association's Best Book Award the year after his was published. There it is, and probably a lot of kids in Mormon school got those pizzas with the Book It Club. <laughs> oh yeah, it's why we always remember to say, we love Joe Rogan, and we just want to make sure that uh, no one ever thinks opposite, you know? <laughs> Tell us it like it is. See, Fawn Brody was named an apostate. Or is it apostate or apostate? I've heard apostate. Apostate. Yes, that's when you're a prostate uh, is really getting into Jesus. That's a funny. That's a funny thing, Kissel. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, with the verbiage there, prostate. Did you, read the Did you read No Man Knows My History? I looked at a whole series of different pornos this week. Is that what we're talking about? What are we on? Here? Well, an apostate is the first of many words in the Mormon vernacular that we're going to learn over the course of this series. Basically, the apostate in the Mormon sense is anyone who questions the absolutely insane story of Joseph Smith or questions any sort of church belief, policy, ritual, or tradition. It is, in Scientology terms, you'd be called an SP. Yes. It is the exact same thing, which is a part of the reason why Mormonism starts to swing towards cult and away from religion. A suppressive person. Mm-hmm. See, Mormons are expected to live in what they call perfect obedience. Yeah, Mormon girls has a lot of that. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's gonna work out. That's gonna work out great. Mm -hmm. And anyone who breaks the rules or asks questions can be, and often will be, excommunicated. And just like with Scientology, excommunication in the Mormon Church means losing your community and oftentimes losing your entire family, which oh my. is why leaving the Mormon church is so difficult. You mean to tell me I don't have to be screamed at, screamed at by both of my parents and then have to like share all my food with my brothers? <laughs> I think this excommunication idea sounds wonderful. Well, all the Mormon families I met are very sweet, and mm -hmm. that's a part of the reason why, well, you know, again, the deeper and deeper we go deeper and deeper. deeper I can't stop it. I, know, I can't I fucking stop it. It's the only way I think of the word deeper. <laughs> um, but it's, it's why it's hard to leave, and why mm -hmm. it's hard to question even the, the problems with Within the church is that they build these little, very isolated communities that mm -hmm. on their own are are well taken care of. The families are very loving. It's a very loving community. Yes. But the problem is, is that the it's it's more of the they don't want to hear the right. evidence. They mm -hmm. do not want to be a party to it. They want to, they don't want to know that anybody who is a human being who is saying that I am the prophet and literally I'm the only person who can talk to God mm -hmm. for you and I'm the only person that's legit and that you have to listen to this person with perfect obedience, which is a lot of times, I mean, I'm not going to say anything about the gangly, horny, twisted old men with the hairy knuckles and the big rings that run Mormonism and what they do and how their their hands like spiders that move from your 
your knee up to your hips. If you're even yeah. any close to the age of 12 years old, you're going to wonder why they, they ignore all that mm-hmm. and because the rest of it's so nice. All the other packaging, all the good stuff. It's like being in the Republican Party. I hear a lot of those mixers are fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they always have good parties there, and it's nice. Henry is, in La, uh, is not in Los Angeles. He's here in the East Coast studio, so when he does his act-outs, he can really touch me, and Henry just did a spider crawl with his hand up my leg, and I don't know how to feel about it. I really don't. And I also just want to say, you know, it's important to, it's difficult to do it, but you got to separate sometimes people from their religion and their political ideology and just see them as people because, again, these are loving communities in many ways, and there are some loving people involved. Yes, they are loving communities and these are loving families. Just so long as you stay in line. Yep. yep. The moment you step out of line, the moment you question, the moment you want to the moment you start living life the way you want to live yes. life, they are no longer loving communities. Uh, I understand. No, they become, the FLDS becomes like Scientology, especially as we get later on in these episodes when we start covering that specific offshoot of Mormonism. And you're searching, like, they are not, they become very not friendly. They're yeah. a bunch of people who look like the the canist from out the Quaker Oats man, but they're women, and they are mad at you. No, oh, that's not good. <laughs> Well, despite Mormonism's many gigantic and fatal flaws, or perhaps because of them, Mormonism is a specifically American religion in that it could not have been created anywhere else in the world at any other time in history. Woo! See, when Mormonism was founded, that's not really a woohoo. <laughs> that's a USA. <laughs> USA. I don't USA. know, though. It's, got, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> yeah. See, when Mormonism was founded, the idea that the government had no say whatsoever in religion and, in fact, backed off as hard as they could from religion, that was totally new. It was a totally new idea that had never been uh, a concept in world government before. But the interesting dichotomy of America is that while the founding fathers were freewheeling intellectuals who pretty much came up with the idea for America in a series of bars as a fun thought exercise, (laughs) the actual people who lived here were, by and large... Religious loons. Religious loons. <laughs> I, we don't even know what those are anymore. We don't. We barely even see those guys anymore. Yeah, what could that be? But well, I do love the concept of it because you were reading a book called Fantasyland. Fantasyland right? is fantastic. But it's it, so fucking good. It's about the beginning of America. Literally, was just drunk dudes in a bar, just like <laughs> just smart guys who figured this shit out. And man, oh man, what a fun experiment it has been. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. I do that all the time. We figured out a lot of stuff with that pig farmer I spoke to. And yeah. St. Paul, I've figured out quite a few things in bars. Oh, yeah? Yeah, buddy. (laughs) Well, the difference, though, is that the Founding Fathers actually pulled it off. Like, the drunk ideas that they had... We're living in it right now. Wow. <laughs> I love it. And, but they also had to get all of the actual people who lived in America to come along with that idea. And yeah. It's just, like it's a fun to talk about with your buddies about how you should run a fucking elevated corn dog restaurant. Yeah. And about 3.30 in the morning, it sounds better and better and better. You know what I mean? But the problem is you need corn dog manufacturers. <laughs> you need corn dog taste testers. You yeah. need yeah. the guy with sticks. Just yeah. cut to Benjamin Franklin in a tutu, sucking on a corn dog very seductively, <laughs> just, just all seductive and things. Just be like, that's another thing you can do with a corn dog, Ben. That's great. Well, the whole thing about like taxation without representation, the thing about that is that we should have been paying taxes to England. They were fighting ro- wars for us. Like wow. we actually. Oh, no. wow. Like, listen to Marcus. Yeah, this is what happened to him. Like, like taxation without representation was 
a scam. This like, is why they don't <laughs> like don't. books. This is yes. why they don't like books because they get bad little ideas like Marcus. I ain't paying taxes to England. No way. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Is that, but they had to get all these people to come along somehow because it was a high, these were highfalutin ideas. And I'm not saying that every person in America in 1776 was an idiot or even overly religious. But it's not like we were just overflowing with Ben Franklin's. Mm. No, I mean, he was overflowing. But yes, we were not overflowing. <laughs> He was experimenting with world cuisine. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do, but I'm on the inside. Yeah. I mean, after all, you know, many of the first settlers came here because their religious beliefs were a bit much for Europe. And Americans have always loved the idea of being able to not only live whatever life they wanted to live, but to also believe whatever the fuck it is they want to believe, mm -hmm. no matter how insane or fact-defying that belief might be. It's called making it work, baby. Making it work. <laughs> got yeah. fucking, it's got to do two wrongs. They could make a right if the two wrongs are you're, you're, you are correct to yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, belief has always been more important to Americans than fact. That's just the way it is. What is a fact, Marcus? <laughs> a thing that is true? Oh, what is true, though? Uh, we can do this all day. No, you two are great Americans. See? <laughs> he said that as an insult, but yeah. I took it as a compliment. That's how you do it. That's how you flip it. Well, Mormonism is a prime example of this. And Mormonism took it even further by geographically rooting Christianity in America. Mm. See, for those of you who don't know much about Mormonism, Mormonism is to Christianity what Christianity is to Judaism. Now, obviously, this is an oversimplification. We're trying to figure out exactly how to explain it, but... I do love your angle on this. Yeah, that's well, understandable. Well, it took the already existing Judeo-Christian stories and just added a new book, an addendum with all new rules and all new stories that doesn't fully discount anything that was written before, but it still acknowledges that all of it did, in fact, happen. Yeah, we're in the fan fiction world of Christianity. Oh, okay. I've, I've heard many a Jewish person refer to the New Testament as... Jewish fanfic. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But what the Book of Mormon says is that everything that has been taught to Christians between Christ's death and, say, about 1830 was completely and totally wrong because they were missing a full third of the story. And that missing third just so happened to occur in America. Hell yeah, right. dude. Fucking trilogy, dude. It's nice. always a problem to do four movies because it doesn't oh, really yeah. make as much sense as just three. Well, for example, if you've ever wondered where Jesus Christ went during those three days between his crucifixion and his resurrection. Where'd he go? America. Yeah, yes. dude. Had to. Had to. He got on a little, he got on his pumper. He came out here. He t I think he took the Concord. He Do you remember that? I remember and that. And he went straight to New York and it was him and Arnold Schwarzenegger as Hercules. Oh. Great movie. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the Garden of Eden, Ben. I know you've wondered where that that where that was. I already went to the Garden of Eden. It's a chain restaurant now, and it <laughs> oh, is. that's with a T. <laughs> yes, that's very. With a T. Well, no, I'm talking about the biblical Garden of Eden. You I know, know where that is, Ben? It's in Narnia. It's in Jackson County, Missouri. Of course. <laughs> Where would you not put the Garden of Paradise? Of course it would be in the middle of beautiful Missouri. No, if it was in the middle of Jackson, Missouri, it would be full of Panera Breads and Applebee's. And crystal meth. <laughs> and meth. Jackson is... County, Missouri. That's where Independence, Missouri is now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, in other words, Joseph Smith, who was a fantastically talented storyteller by the standards of the time, Joseph Smith created a mythology for America using a story that was already familiar to the majority of Americans. He just retrofitted 
an old school like Native American story, which also necessarily wasn't true. And he he did what was because it wasn't Twilight wasn't something. Oh, wasn't Fifty Shades of Grey Twilight fan fiction? I don't. I know. believe that that's what? how it started. That hmm. it was Twilight fan fiction. It's just that thing where they just took a story and he went. And he twisted it. We're just lucky that Walt Disney just wanted to make money. And it, yeah. like, that Walt Disney just wanted to make money, and so he created his stories where it's like, and even L. Ron Hubbard, even L. I almost view him with a level of purity because he just wanted money. Yeah. Where Joseph Smith used this storytelling ability to control human beings. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there is an important distinction to make with Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith did not consider himself a messiah like, say, David Koresh did. Mm. He did not think that he was the second coming of Jesus Christ. No, he would never deign. (laughs) He would never deign to say he's the messiah. But is he the only one that can speak for the messiah? Uh Uh-huh. See, that's a good move, though. Smart move. He makes him look humble. And then despite, but then that's how you get in the back door. Yep. And then people put you in the front. Yep, that's right. I mean, G- Joseph Smith was a prophet. Joseph Smith was like, he's the American Muhammad, the American Moses. Okay. But what's convenient about that, at least from the perspective of the modern Mormon establishment, is that Joseph Smith can now be rejiggered as just a man or a product of his time. Oh, yeah. It's it's like going, uh, you know, because then you're going to be like, hey, guys, I'm just a guy. And at, at any point, if someone's being like, Joseph, uh, you just told me to sleep with my own daughter. And you're like, hey, come on, I'm just a guy. I just put a little seed in there, and you took it to having sex with your own daughter, you pervert. Because uh, I already had her. Oh, my Joseph. Joseph. Smith never made his followers have sex with their own daughter. Come on, hey, take around with her. Come on, my This is your idea, you crazy. Well, today, many Mormons choose to look at the big picture of Joseph's life. You don't look at the details. You don't look at the small things. Sure. Because they fold Joseph Smith's life into a larger faith in God, which sweeps away any details, such as child brides, that might make Mormons uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you really start asking questions, from the outside at least, all Mormons have to say is, don't take our word for it. Millions of people already believe. Oh, it's oh, like my. Shamwell. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Shamwell is great. If millions of people believe it, then next thing you know, The Daily Show has another Emmy. <laughs> you know, it's all that's all it's about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that line, by the way, is from an LDS website that desperately titled, It's True! It's true. <laughs> I also want to preface this. I am gonna. I do feel like I, I. I just said it again. I just technically spoke like pro LRH words, um, and I don't mean to. It's just that uh, Marcus and I talked about this about how like I'm an LRH guy. I'm not going to say just because you physically are him. I mean, I, he's a role model. I know he's a role physically body role model. Yeah. But Marcus is kind of a Joseph Smith guy. You know why? Why? Because I like fantasy and Henry likes sci-fi. That's what that comes is down. not even remote. That is one one hundredth of both of their personalities. No, but it's a big part. It's a huge part. It's their storytelling style because Joseph Smith <sighs> told an old school fantasy story, like with warring tribes and you know, and different races and all got like he had like orcs versus elves. The ultimate irony of this entire podcast is both of you are going to become cult members. <laughs> that is, what, you're going to become a Mormon. You're going to become a Scientologist, and I'm just going to be like. 
I guess no. I'm going to go enroll at Farwell University then. No, Marcus and I don't like bosses. That's yeah. why we were bad at regular jobs. Yeah. We don't, so that now we're at this point where it's like, I, I, would, I would have to be in charge of a cult, but what are we discovering as bosses of our own little company? It's a lot. I don't know how to tell them what to do. It's I don't a know lot what to of say. work. It's a lot of work. You, you can also see why Joseph Smith, you see you have all these people like, what do you want it to do, Joe? What do you want to do? And eventually it's like, I guess you guys can start blowing me. <laughs> No, the only job I've ever had with bosses was when I was a dog nanny, and those were dog bosses. <laughs> they were not they real were, bosses. You didn't have to like, get you the chihuahua. She was a boss. Well, baked into Mormonism's DNA is the ability to change course whenever they want through what they call revelation, oh. meaning that at any time, God can come down and give the Mormons a new commandment, hmm. and everyone has to be cool with it. And revelation is why mainstream Mormons no longer practice polygamy, despite the fact that it was, at one point, a central tenet of their belief system. One of the biggest revelations. But we'll get into polygamy on episode two. Yeah, because I've seen a show. I've seen Sister Wives. Yeah. And that is, they're Mormon, aren't they? But the mainstream Mormon established, like the big, the the quorum of 12, or whoever the fuck they are, the Uh people in Salt Lake City, the people up top, they all come out against Mormon. They all come out against polygamy. They say polygamy's wrong. We should not do polygamy. They supposedly did away with polygamy uh, before the 20th century even came about. uh, But the, remember, the revelation isn't like a group email (laughs) sent to everyone. Right. The revelation is given to uh, the prophet, whoever is the president of the church at the time. He then interprets and then tells everybody what God told him to do. So, yeah. so that's kind of their David Miscavige type person, then. But David Miscavige, the same thing, kind of has like so he does have a panel that he has to go run shit by, right? But the general movement is that whatever the prophet says is the word of God. I will say in probably the next 10 to 20 years, the head of the LDS is going to have a revelation saying gay people are fine. Yeah. Because, because oh, they want to stay in power. They want to stay in power. They want to stay relevant. And that's the because that's the big that's the big sticking point with Mormonism. They right could now. probably get on that sooner than 10 or 15 years. It's going it, to take a while. Well, but they're, they're going to get on it. I guarantee you. Salt Lake City's changed quite a bit because they've become a more open city, especially the LGBT community. And you're going to and it's about that. It's they are standing the test of time. Joe, the original energy that came forward from Joseph, <clears throat> Joseph Smith, it could have been done. It could have been squashed then. But Brigham Young helped take the whole thing to the right. next level, which we'll, we'll end up covering. Yeah, we'll get into him. And I mean, judging by the amount of alcohol that was consumed when we were in Salt Lake City, I'm assuming they sort of relaxed the rules on booze <laughs> a little bit as well. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, polygamy was... When the American government came to Utah and said, we will only make you a state if you get rid of polygamy, ah. pretty he, soon after look up, that... Yeah, the prophet went, oh, I had a, oh, I had a visitation oh, from God last oh. night. Yeah. Interesting. The God was dressed like a, an, a member of the FBI. Very intriguing. <laughs> but really, when you get down to it, the Mormon belief system is really no crazier than the Christian belief system, the Hindu belief system, the Islamic belief system, or the Jewish belief system. The difference here, though, is that we don't have testimony from Jesus' next-door neighbor, nor do we have accounts of Luke or Mark fucking over people on treasure-hunting expeditions or marrying young teenagers when they were in their late 30s. Mm. Admittedly, you know, the Old Testament does have the whole Noah, like, naked and drunk and having sex with his own daughters thing. It's a parable. (laughs) It's a parable. (laughs) But the point is, though, is what we have with Joseph Smith is a wealth of actual information about his actual life, not just what the Mormon establishment 
wants us to know. So this is the most recent big religion, right? Less this, than 200 years ago. So this is, I guess Scientology would be the most recent. Yes. But this is really interesting to actually be right there. Yeah. And this is probably most likely what the prophets of the Bible were truly like. It kind of, yeah, makes you think about the entire thing like it's all like <laughs> some gigantic extended fraud. But I don't want to say that. <laughs> But, but then I again, <laughs> but I do end up saying it does roll off the tongue, though, doesn't it? <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into the story of Joseph Smith and the birth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. the Mormons. Can we have some of that Native American flute like they have in the Canadian <laughs> documentary where it's like Joseph Smith? Was born in a small town in Vermont. And then... Like Natural History Museum music. Yeah, I love that. So he birthed the religion. Uh, Joseph Smith's capacity for questioning mainstream religion was actually somewhat of a family tradition, with his mother writing that she couldn't choose a church because every church said that every other church was wrong. She called it the church... She said the witness... The churches witnessed against one another. Mm. So... It is impossible to choose the correct one. Well, because a part of it is that when we sh- when we changed, when we took, when we separated church and state, when America went independent in 1776, it kind of threw the whole thing into disarray mm-hmm. because a bunch of secular dudes were trying to, like, they were still obviously religious people, but that threw a rift in the middle of this country. Mm-hmm. So people kind of went insane for a little bit trying to figure out what right. the fuck are we supposed to believe and who is the main church here we're used to having a main one it's yeah. almost as if people are extremely tribal and can only handle a certain amount of people inside said tribe and in order to have said tribe they have to have an enemy which is most likely <laughs> just another tribe what yeah. <laughs> yeah remember this is like 20 30 years after the american revolution cool. this is not that long afterwards no not at all we're still a baby yeah we Mer- are america's a baby well, Joseph Smith also had storytelling in his ancestry as well. His grandfather, Solomon Mack, composed an autobiography called A Narrative of the Life of Solomon Mack. That's a kick-ass name, I have to say. Solomon Solomon Mack is, like, double badass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he sounds like the best bass player from 1976. <laughs> why are my pants all wet? Mm, I know why. It's yourself. <laughs> oh, that's not pee, my friend. Well, this book, writing an actual book, that set Solomon Mack apart from other Americans at, a, at the time because writing was not common in any way whatsoever. On the other hand, once Solomon grew into old age, he fell into what Fawn Brody called a kind of senile mysticism with lights and voices haunting his sickbed day and night. We're going to see that the beginnings of, of especially America were incredibly mystic. There's a lot of occult leanings, yeah. and that's a part of why I'm very excited about talking about Joseph Smith and his basically incorporation of an entire world of right-hand path magic into Mormonism. And Joseph Smith had other religious dissenters on that side of his family as well. Jo- Jason Mack, Joseph Smith's uncle, set up a quasi-communistic society of 30 families in New Brunswick and oversaw both their economic and spiritual welfare. And they mm. jump right over this and other, they don't like to bring him up no. quite a bit in, in Mormon circles because it straight up shows his uncle ran a cult. Yeah. And mm. he got this, all of this was downloaded into Joseph Smith's brain even as a little kid. Mm-hmm. So it's just the family business, it sounds like. Yep. And as far as the other side of Joseph Smith's family went, Smith's ancestry ran back to pre-Revolutionary War days with his first ancestor, Robert Smith, coming to Massachusetts in 1638. 
I love how goth he was. I love it. <laughs> the same Robert Smith. Man, that would have been a, a weird ride on the fucking. What, what was it? The Nina and the Pinta? Yeah. Not the, the Nina San, and the Pinta. And the Santa Maria. No, what was the other one? The one that went to. It's not Casterly Rock. Oh, you're talking about Plymouth Rock? You're talking yeah. about the Mayflower? Yes. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I, I can't Robert, Robert oh. Smith in his button up shirt and his khakis. And his, I love mascara yeah. running down his face and like his weird pink lipstick on him. I have, I have always. Said it. Bill Hicks wanted his rock stars dead. I want my rock stars fat. I love it. I want to see fat Marilyn Manson and Rob Zombie. I mean, he's Rob good. is still rail thin. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, he looks yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, Marilyn's got a little bit of. He's got some rider gut. I love it. From your grave. My sister is the best gift giver I've ever met of any person. It's Jackie Zabrowski. She shops all year, thinking about her family and friends and puts little things aside for their birthdays and Christmases. I have no idea how she does it. I don't know how she do it, but guess what? She always wins Mother's Day, but not this year. I'm coming back. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? I'm taking the crown. All right, give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. I mean this. We have the Aura frame up in my home. We absolutely love it. I can put photos on it very, very easily through the app. It's fun to do. And the memories keep cycling and I get emotional and we filled it with pictures of Carmi and Wendy. And that is not sad. That is celebratory. So you should try it. It's honestly a really good product. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code LEFT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text. And that helps you save time. I know I'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with horse pics. Now, part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents' accounts. Now, so what I've done to do is like, so while I'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse pics over various country borders, I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. From your but the one thing the Smiths could never figure out was how to make money. Before Smith was even born, his father invested all his family savings in a shipment of ginseng, although New Englanders at the time, they preferred sarsaparilla, pleurisy root, and something called skunk cabbage. Have you ever had hamster carrots? 
hamster no. carrots. Oh yeah, they're great. You ever had those? No. You ever I... had um um? You never had a sock cucumber? A sock. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> you've never had a gronk? <laughs> hey, you've never had blush blush? <laughs> I can't tell if you're naming real foods because you eat the weirdest <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well, that doesn't really matter that New Englanders didn't like ginseng all that much because Smith wasn't trying to sell ginseng to the New Englanders. He was trying to export it to China, where it was said that a ginseng root shaped like a man could be sold for as much as $400. It looked like a man. And the reason why it did was because if you did sell a ginseng root that looked like a man, it does help with your wiener, apparently. I believe that. I believe that. And you also referenced one of the only good characters from Mad TV. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Predictably, though, the transportation agent that sold the ginseng to China fucked off to Canada with the money. Ah. So the Smiths were forced to sell their farm and use Lucy's dowry to pay off their debts. And this was (sighs) going to be a mark on them for forever, because for a second, they had money. Yeah. They were ready to go because one of the family members of the past had figured out how to make that cash. And from then on, it's going to be like, how do we make some fucking easy dollars? Yep. Because we are bad at every single thing that we touch. So it really is just someone making a bad investment and not understanding the market. Mm-hmm. So it's like everyone in the, remember the late 90s tech bust? Yeah. When everything blew and everyone's like, but I have all this stock in app.com. The, the, the 15 gallons of Beanie Babies we have in my family's <laughs> fucking garage. <laughs> Well, because of these bad business decisions, when Joseph Smith Jr. was born in 1805 in Sharon, Vermont, his family was pretty much transient, and Smith lived in seven different places by the time he was five years old. But when Smith was just eight, he went through an ordeal that I'm actually surprised scholars don't talk about more, or at Hmm. least they don't talk about it in the right light. In 1812, typhoid fever took hold in the Northeast and killed 6,400 people in just five months. Jeez. And if you don't know, typhoid is one of those developing country illnesses that's usually caused by shitting in your own water supply. I mean, I like shitting in the sink, especially when I can't get to the toilet. (laughs) Yeah. Why am I going to fucking clean all that out when I can kind of just middle my hands? Especially if I'm, like, straining a bunch of spaghetti and it accidentally falls out of the colander. You just kind of, like, get all in there. I think that's how they made Cincinnati chili. (laughs) Well, people either drink the tainted water or eat food grown from the tainted water supply, and then they get infected with salmonella, and those people then become contagious and they can spread typhoid fever to others through just simple human contact. Okay. As far as symptoms go, typhoid causes fevers as high as 104, painful sores, and potentially fatal diarrhea. Oh, man. To be honest, it'd be kind of fun to go like that because you get to have all that private time with your phone. (laughs) Yeah, you get all the private time with your phone. Or back in the day when you actually had to read the back of shampoo bottles like we had to when we were growing up. You were getting actually upset. I just brought a book in there. Yeah. You just bring a book. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, I I don't care about bringing a book in my own bathroom. I always read a book in my own bathroom. But then I brought a book into the airplane bathroom Mm. once. And when it came out, people looked at me like I'm a big piece of shit. Well, it is a little strange. (laughs) How long were you planning on being in there? I mean, I take my time. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. In 1812, when Joseph Smith was just eight years old, he contracted typhoid. 
Now, he only had the disease for about two weeks, but during that time, he developed a sore in his armpit that lasted another two weeks before that sore got lanced, which produced about a quart of pus. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yikes. It's like one of those YouTube videos. Yeah. The, or uh, Dr. Pimple Popper, mm-hmm. which I see every now and again. After that, Smith got another infection in his left shin and his ankle, when that sore lasted for another three weeks, and that infection got into the bone. So literal barber surgeons bored holes into his leg bone and chipped away the infected pieces. Well, they wanted (sighs) to get rid of the whole leg, and they kept negotiating Mm -hmm. with the barber surgeon, who's just like, yeah, yeah, I take the whole leg. And they're like, (laughs) we know you're excited to take the whole leg, but we think maybe we can save it. He's just like, I take half the leg. And he's (laughs) like, well, you know, we'd love to just get a little chunk out of there. And then they didn't want to give him booze, because that was the, the, the Antiseptic at right. the time, the anesthetic, the anesthetic at the time, <laughs> right? And they didn't want to give it to him, and so they said the, the 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 first character building thing of Joseph Smith's life was him screaming in the night and like covered in sweat as the fucking barber surgeon went ding 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 ding. Yeah, an operation wow. saved his life. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. Mm. And did he at least get a haircut after? <laughs> <laughs> and 14 more pieces of bone had to work their way to the surface while he healed. Ooh. And what this meant was that Joseph Smith was bedridden for three months. And even after that, Joseph wasn't able to walk on his own for another three years. And many scholars, as Henry said, point to this time in Joseph Smith's life as a toughening up experience. You know, like an ordeal that gave Smith a sense of... A perseverance. Mm -hmm. But think about it this way. I think that what this time really meant was that young Joseph Smith had nothing to do all day long but sit, stare at a wall, and live in his own imagination. Just building stories. Yeah. Became a little Lewis Carroll. And Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is about spending that time alone with your imagination. Sometimes it makes you want to have sex with a child. Well, (laughs) it shouldn't. But, I mean, we used to all do this as children, not the part that you mentioned with a child. Mm -hmm. But we were uh, imaginative kids. I had all my little uh, imaginary friends because I didn't have those things called tangible human friends Mm -hmm. for a very long time. We grew up in very isolated and strange places. So it's it's good to build imagination. Yeah, but but you got to remember. He is laying in a bed, staring at a wall. Now, like, did he have a cat poster up there? And it's like, <laughs> hang in there? No, nothing, dude. He, I mean, probably had some. He had the Bible, maybe. He maybe. had a couple of books, maybe. But most of the time, to see, this is back when kids had to use their imagination. <laughs> and that's back when the kids were stronger and they weren't expecting getting participation trophies <laughs> living their life. Yeah, I always think it's really good that we let these eight year olds know you don't just win, eight year olds. <laughs> this is the time I'm taking a stand during this drawing competition. <laughs> There are plenty of authors and artists who suffer from childhood illnesses, and they use that time to build a fantastic imagination and a talent for storytelling. You tell stories to yourself to keep yourself from going fucking nuts. Uh, you know, because like I said, it's not like Smith could just sit and watch TV all day long. But none of those authors use their imaginations in the way that Joseph Smith would eventually use his. And that's what made Joseph Smith a true, successful American. I do wish that Stephen King just started a cult, although judging by some of those excerpts from It, uh, child sex may have happened as well. But just the fun world where a clown is truly the devil and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. That could be cool. I'm just like, man, I'm, I'm in. 
I'm yeah. totally in. It would be fun. Dreamcatcher is a great movie. Technically, the girl chose to have sex with the boys in that scene. No, I know. I, Not yeah. to, I mean, it's obviously controversial. We don't People need get to get into you the don't child sex. I don't want to talk about the child sex scene in It. Okay, sure. Okay. They cut it from the movie. <laughs> Marcus is the one who doesn't want to do research. That's fine. He's <laughs> oh, yeah. proper reading into the material. Well, that's the end of the podcast. Marcus has killed Henry. So, um... <laughs> So after Joseph's long illness, the family moved to Palmyra in upstate New York, 23 miles west of Rochester. Mm. Now, many of Smith's biographers like to paint upstate as a full-on frontier at this time. And really, large parts of upstate New York were frontier. I mean, I think even Brooklyn and Queens back then was still mostly farms. That's right. Even my dad. My dad growing up in Staten Island, it was all farmland. Mm-hmm. That's why they used to play weird tricks on each other and, like, they used to prank the bus. Like, he used to t- he used to get a rubber ball and he'd tie a fake raccoon tail to the bonnet of it and go, there's some kind of rat in here! And he'd throw <laughs> the ball in the bus and all the people would run out of the bus screaming. Oh, that's, they have a cat toy that does that now. <laughs> Remember that? Well, that was not the case in Palmyra. Palmyra had a population of 4,000, had Ooh. five schools, 76 shops, and three libraries. Yeah, Just so it was. Full of stories. Wow. But yeah, it wasn't the frontier. No. So he right. got far, because that was the whole thing, is essentially they were fucking broke as fuck. And, and father just left. He left. He's like, I got to go find a way for us to make money. And he's like, right. I found it. It's the edge of existence. Yeah. And then they went to Rochester. Yes. <laughs> I think I'm going to invest in this thing that's called the XFL. It's better than the NFL. Well, smaller balls. Smaller balls. <laughs> well, it was just another bad decision in the life of the Smith family because Palmyra was in a boom. It was in a speculation bubble. And Joseph Smith Sr. bought land in Palmyra at the height of speculation Uh. and what he bought was essentially a worthless rock farm most of the land around palmyra was fucking awful as far Mm. as farming went and you know the smith family they did try their best to make a living uh joseph smith's mother lucy she had a small shop that sold gingerbread root beer and boiled eggs. Oh, Honestly. yeah. I love shitting on my way to work. I love making sure I can't make it off the subway to a bathroom, so I just go in my khakis. Gingerbread is very good. I mean, honestly, all they had to do was get those little sticky Google eyes, mm-hmm. pop those on some of those rocks, you got a business. Um, the Pet Rock was one of the most successful products of all time. In one of the, all, of the many weird ways, you're sometimes accidentally correct. I'm uh, on purposely correct when some, it comes to ro- uh, Pet rocks. But sometimes, that is also one of the things she sold. Lucy Smith sold little decorative men, these little, like, puppets, these kind of, like, dolls. That Made of rocks? The children. Not to, out of rocks, but... That, then I'm not even accidentally right. <laughs> because if you would have said she sold pet rocks, then I would have been accidentally no, right. No, she glued googly eyes to things. She didn't have... Go- they didn't have Michaels in 1830. No, there's a guy named Michael with a bunch of <laughs> fake googly eyes. <laughs> But the Smiths were still crushed under a mountain of debt because they bought worthless land at a high point in speculation. Because when it came to business, the Smiths, just they just weren't good at it. Mm. They just were not bright. By contrast, though, America in general was going through a period of unbridled optimism where anything and everything seemed possible. They just built the fucking Erie Canal. Like, oh. they, had compla- they had rerouted nature. So Americans were on a pretty big high horse at that and point. And again, let's clarify, some 
Americans <laughs> uh, because there were large subsets of American people that were not doing so well. They were just dying. Yes. But also Manifest Destiny was a vaguely racist but and also religiously black idea really, that was a thing that was was fueling that optimism as well. Said we can go anywhere and even if there's a bunch of people there, that's our home. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything from your sentence, but I will put on my editor cap and just remove the word vaguely because I'm fairly certain Manifest Destiny was racist. Extremely racist idea. Yes. And with those seemingly endless economic and exploratory possibilities came a parade of new ways to think about religion, just Mm. so long as that religion was rooted in Christianity. Mm, Yes. Now, during this time when Joseph Smith was coming of age, so many different religious movements and revivals blazed their way through upstate New York that the region came to be nicknamed the Burnt Over District. And the people that were getting all the attention were not the highfalutin founding father types. The Baptists, for example, boasted that only three of their preachers had college degrees. They don't need to read to teach you how to do your life. But it's true. They reviewed the upper class that Ben Franklin and all those guys were like, they were like sissy boys with pants up to their knees, which is true, right? They had their little socks on, they had their funny boots, and they like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Right. They had wigs on, and they loved the fuck, and they loved the drink, and they had a great time. Yes. But these Baptists, they weren't doing any of this shit, and all these kind of little splinter groups being ignorant was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anti-intellectualism is not new in this country. God no, it is. Uh, it was there from the very beginning. You know, it's like those highfalutin types, those people up there in Boston, Philadelphia. That's not the real America. Right. The real America is in upstate New York. And, and when I think of completely, they were uh, completely correct. <laughs> yeah. When I think of highfalutin and just totally intellectual, I think Boston because every time you're there, they're so smart they can't even. Contain it in their head. They have to scream it at you on the streets. Absolutely. And whenever I wear shorts above my knee and I get called the F word, and it happens in Boston pretty much every single time I go, I remember, ah, this is where our country was started. Oh, Harvard, the place that is the home of all the intellectuals. In no way did they just buy you. Let's talk about college campus. <laughs> Well, as Fawn Brody wrote, the sober preacher trained in the dialectics of the seminary was rare west of the Appalachians. Mm. In other words, people were just making shit up, and others were buying it just so long as that shit was passing familiar. I mean, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just sitting here drinking Mountain Dew because, I don't know, I just want to do the dew. I mean, I just feel like this is actually really good for me, and I just like it, so. One guy named Isaac Bullard in Woodstock, Vermont, he preached free love and communism, but he also believed that washing was a sin. And he only wore a bearskin girdle, which he claimed to have kept unwashed for seven years. Just flip it and make it something you brag about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I smell it's fun. <laughs> No, he's the G.G. Allen of Vermont. (laughs) (laughs) Then there was Anne Lee, whose sect was known as the Shakers. Anne Lee claimed to be Christ reincarnated, and it was falsely rumored that the Shakers danced naked, castrated their men, still fucked constantly somehow, and sacrificed their children. Why do people... Always, why does this always happen? And it does happen in the beginning of Mormonism, both fairly and unfairly, and anything. So when a group of people form... And they make a little group, and they seem to be having a good time. Everybody gets really mad at them and says stuff like how they eat their kids and they mm-hmm. they and they fuck all the babies and they're they're all doing all this bad shit. But a lot of times yeah. they're just kind of isolated. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of people who don't 
do anything with their lives. They stay isolated, and then over time they become very bitter, and they see people having fun, and they have to assume that those people are doing something nefarious. Otherwise, they've made every bad decision in their life to be so unbelievably <laughs> miserable. I think it's also boredom and storytelling. You know, mm. Especially in those times, you're bored, you see this group of people that are isolated, they're weird, you only see little things from the outside because, of course, they only let the insiders uh, see what's really going on, and you're bored as fuck. What the fuck are you going to do all day long? Yeah. You make up stories. You and make they have, up stories about the people around you. And they have like the spacey, wide-eyed smile of a group of people. They look like they all just got freshly fucked or they're on <laughs> drugs, but it's actually just enjoying community. You know what? Speaking of that, Hare Krishnas, they're usually here in the summertime, and I haven't seen them at all. I think the Hare Krishnas are on the, uh, I think they're on the, the downward slope. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen one dancing. Because normally they used to be in Union Square all the time, and they used to make you dance in order yes, to I... get through to the Q train. Ugh, it was very <laughs> annoying. Well, another one of these guys out there preaching in upstate New York, you had uh, Joseph Dilks. Actually, Joseph Dilks. He was in nearby Ohio. Uh, Dilks wore a bright yellow beaver hat and called himself the Leatherwood God. Honestly, all of these guys sound like libertarian presidential candidates. <laughs> like, remember uh, Ver- Vernon Supreme? This is it, yeah. It's all vermin supreme. Who's from Vermont? Oh, all right. Vermont is, you know. Vermont is liberal Arkansas. <laughs> well, this guy, the Leatherwood God, Joseph Dilks, he preached through a series of shouts and horse impersonations. Hey, bitch. Hey. Hey. God loves you. God loves me. Doesn't he, huh? Hey, guys, it's illegal to wear shoes on Wednesday. Nay. Well, what do you do? He's like, Jesus Christ is Lord. <laughs> That's fun. Sounds like it's Queen. Fun. Sounds like Queen Carlotta from Desperate Living. <laughs> then you had Jemima Wilkinson. She also claimed to be Christ after she, she said she died from a fever and came back reincarnated as Christ. Okay. She called herself the Universal Friend and c- proclaimed herself to be genderless. She okay. also said that she could not die. Yeah, she did. She did die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Her gimmick was that she was supposed to have been able to recite the entire Bible despite not knowing how to read or write. And, you know, all these people, they had followers, although some had a higher quality of followers than others. Jemima Wilkinson had a follower named Prophet Elijah who would bind his lower belly with a girdle, and when his (laughs) upper belly started to swell from the pressure, Prophet Elijah would be struck with prophetic visions. See how I'm sitting right now and how, like, the top my my top belly is getting swollen by how my tiny shorts, right? You have very tiny shorts on this. Okay, I'm filling it up. Okay, let me roll my eyes back. Let me. Oh, we're about to get some really primo info here. Okay, I'm getting, I'm getting a vision. Mm-hmm. The, oh, okay, the Smithfield Switchbacks are gonna win the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, that's a, they're gonna have to become a team first. Oh no, it's a, it's a minor league AAA baseball team. It's gonna become a football team. You'll see. It's gonna be on ESPN nine. <laughs> Well, as it happened, Jemima and Prophet Elijah later had a falling out, and Elijah became a justice of the peace for the sole purpose of charging Jemima with blasphemy, but then he was uh, very disappointed to learn that blasphemy was not illegal in America. Mm. Oh, Uh, that's so funny. Yeah. Uh, But see, this 180... Uh, when it came to Jemima and Elijah, this was fairly typical in these sorts of communities. See, when people are converted by upstart revivals and gimmicks, it tends not to stick. It's like mm. how Wendy's did that Italian burger. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure, people would be stricken by the jerks, which was when the heads and the limbs would snap and contort, or they'd be stricken by the barks. 
where they would crawl on all fours and act like a dog. Uh-huh. Uh, but for a lot of Americans, this was like a fun afternoon. You just, ever get a you ever get a um, you ever get a case of the cunts where you just yeah. give a bunch of businesses one star on Yelp for no reason? I don't know. I've, you know what? I've never rated anything other than five stars. Yeah, why would you? I, I don't know. I just like, you have to be a broken person to go to the internet to give it one star. Just to, it's putting your rage into a. Uh, it's you're screaming at a wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, one preacher lamented that most of the churches founded on revivals they barely lasted three months. Like he'd come through. It's like, yep, there's be a revival. The church would be full. Everyone would be full of the energy of Jesus Christ. Come back three months later. Fucking nobody. No one. Yeah, okay. no one at all. And even I mean, the Leatherwood God, he was eventually arrested for fraud. But hmm. then he was released because, in the words of the judge, quote, it was not a crime to be a god. Hey. Okay. That's very cool. Cool judge, actually. Yeah, absolutely. That is true. What can he do? Because he's just looking at this man covered in grime with a pot on his head. And he's just like, well, you know, if you somehow got people out to your farm to just to hang out with you, well, what, good work, buddy. Quick aside, what had happened with the Leatherwood God is that he would bring his followers out to the river, and it would appear as if the Leatherwood God was walking on water. But what had happened is the Leatherwood God had gone out the night before and had put a bunch of big rocks in the river honestly, so just under the surface. That's so smart. <laughs> That's then, how you do it. And then he, it appeared as if he was walking on water, but then a couple of teenagers went out and looked, actually looked in the river and was like, Wait a minute. Wait a second, Dave. Yes. Wait a second. Are them walking rocks? <laughs> Those are walk- the parlor yeah. the parlor tricks that led to every religion mm-hmm. are just they're so obvious. Yeah, and that is the thing that the Leatherwood God was not asking for money or anything no, like dude, that. No, dude, he was in show business, yeah. bro. Yeah. He was putting on an act and people were buying it for a little while, but he's yeah. very stinky. Well, yeah. everyone's always like, oh, well, you can walk on water, but can you swim in sand? <laughs> That's the question. I would be much more impressed if someone could, like a like a tremor, uh-huh. if they talking could about, go through water, but it... Uh, you're talking like Scrooge McDuck? You're talking about Bugs yes, Bunny. Like, like <laughs> Bugs Bunny, if you can swim to- through sand, that is more difficult than walking on water. Hmm. Interesting perspective. <laughs> Thank you. Sometimes the simple man, he comes up with, with uh, an allegorical story that we all can learn from. Technically, that's all these people are. But in the middle of all this shit was a young Joseph Smith, who was at the very least absorbing everything going on around him, if not actively taking mental notes on what worked on his fellow man and what didn't. Joseph Smith, I would put him somewhere between Paul Dano from There Will Be Blood mm. and uh, Steve Martin. Right? From the what? comedian. Because Steve, Martin, Steve Martin as a guy? Well, yes. And a comedian. What he talks about, if you read his book, Born Standing Up, he talks about how he intellectually looked at the field of stand-up, right? And he saw a gap. Yes. Where he was like, there's a lot of political comedy and all this stuff going. He's like, someone needs to be silly. I'm going to place myself right in the avenue where I need to be. I'm going to learn how to do this style of comedy. And I'm going to be very, very successful. Joseph Smith was a really good fucking quarterback for religion. And he mm. looked at the field, and he saw where where he needed to go, and he saw where some dudes fucked up, and some guys were, like, the ones that actually made it, for, like, the, the guys that were making money around him, and he put himself right in it. As a little boy, he understood. That is why I've always said, I am the Steve Martin of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> when I, have you said it? I just said it now. Okay. <laughs> found, well, a, found a gap, and I filled it. <laughs> Take it easy. Well, that's the thing about cult leaders. And yes, Joseph Smith 
is a cult leader. Mm. If you'll remember from our Jonestown series, Jim Jones began studying the differences between Christian sects in his hometown of Lynn, Indiana, when he was about five years old. Remember, Jim Jones would go from church to church to church, yeah. looking and asking questions, Ugh. looking how what were all the differences in it? How did people react to all this shit? So much potential to be good. Yeah. And these men, they have some sort of inborn fascination with an understanding of both religion and belief. They meditate upon how people react to these things, and they later use that understanding to manipulate those who are apt to listen. Now, we're not saying that men like Jim Jones, Joseph Smith, or L. Ron Hubbard wanted to specifically be cult leaders when they grew up, but it does seem like it was the job each of them was born to have. Hmm. Yeah, man, L. Ron Hubbard, he, was the, he had the body of a god, and he had the mind hmm. of a just, oh, what a sweet little chestnut he was, man. <laughs> Fucking big old teeth, and he was built for it. Uh, he was? He was Could. built to be a prophet. I, but Joseph Smith, there's, again, there's just there's something about that concept. It's somewhere between priest, stand-up, politician, where they have this Im- this built-in ability and need because Joseph Smith was also born with a chip on his shoulder because mm-hmm. the family always talked about how they used to have money and they used to and like we are better than this yeah you know, we're better than this struggling farm life one of us and they used to talk to the whole family one of us is meant because there were well, 11 of them he had 10 siblings yes. I'm gonna add another profession that starts with a P priest st- stand up doesn't start with a P um, <laughs> or politician uh, professional wrestlers I was watching an interview with Stone Cold Steve Austin he was on Hot Wings mm-hmm. or Hot Ones which is a great show show about chicken wings and questions um and he was saying if you're not a you're not a good professional wrestler unless you're just gauging the crowd you just got to react to the crowd you got to you you have you to listen have to, to the crowd physically very big. yes you do <laughs> well, here's the thing about joseph smith although the mormons like to paint smith's teenage years as being full of ruminations about the problems with the christian church joseph smith was more just a likable lazy fuck who had the reputation of a liar he okay. came out with the gift of gab. He dressed a little fancier than the other kids. He kind of had this weird thing where he would put it to, but he had like a swerve to him. He was kind of, he was super funny. Yeah, and he was kind of good looking too. But, and, but to be fair, I mean, people would think you're a liar if you're like, women should vote. They would be like, yeah, <laughs> this guy is a liar. Like if you even brought up certain scientific fact, no, they would think a, that you're a liar. No, he was a straight up liar as in he told falsehoods, like saying that he knew certain things or did certain things when he didn't know those things or didn't do those Uh, things. Well, he's not around to ask him, is he? (laughs) In Zabrowski fashion, sometimes it's more fun in a funny way and actually a more effective way of telling a story by adding little exaggerations and fabrications to the story. And then sometimes in that fiction, is there not more truth? No, there's not because that means I have to correct you. Mm -hmm. Yes, (laughs) it reminds me of that author. What was it? A Thousand Little Pieces. Uh Remember that book? Yes, where he went on Oprah and then she's like very mad at him after it turns out that (laughs) it was all a lie. Well, the reason why the Mormon church has the view of Joseph Smith as, you know, a kid who was thinking about religion, ruminating about religion, is that they believe that Joseph Smith had his first prophetic vision at the age of 14, or at the age of 16, depending on which draft of Joseph's story you go with. Okay. It's said in Mormon mythology that in early 1820, Joseph Smith decided to pray for the first time, but since the log cabin in which he lived was occupied by his ten siblings and his parents, the woods, he decided, were a better place for prayer. They were a better place for fucking everything. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) makes sense. And as Joseph Smith was praying, he said that a pillar of light came down from the sky, and through that light walked both God... And Jesus. Yeah, dude, number one and number two. Wow. And God told Joseph 
that all the creeds of men were an abomination in God's sight. I do love the way they run down the, the vision, because they said it's just the pure Lord of light showed up, and one turned into Jesus, and then God was kind of this hazy thing. He turned into a man with a long beard, and then he just pointed at Jesus, <laughs> and like, Jesus just starts talking, and he's just like, him nodding and shit, mm-hmm. it's fucking Jesus is talking, I'm like, yeah, son. <laughs> like yeah, no. like when Steven Tyler lets his bassist sing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, bro, yeah. he's doing it. Let him fucking lay down some fucking lits in your fucking little ass, dude. God, if you don't follow Steven Tyler on Instagram, you all must follow Old Rockers on Instagram if you want the good part of the internet. Well, Joseph Smith asked God which church was the right one to join, and God said not a single one of them <gasps> got it right. What? And Joseph was to join no church at all. As far as I can tell, after that, God just kind of fucked off back to heaven. I got to tell you what, Joe, it's been fun, but I got to go invent this thing called AIDS. <laughs> oh, my. Could you not do that, God, please? Nah, I kind of got to do it. You got to do it? Because challenge makes people hornier. I don't know. I wish you would. Now, Joseph later claimed that he told people about this vision, specifically the local Methodist preacher. He wasn't shy about telling people that he saw Jesus Christ and God because at that time, visions of Jesus Christ and God were fucking everywhere in upstate New York. But I they see. were also reported. Yeah, they were all reported in the local press. And before we judge, you know, and say like, oh, wow, that's really dumb. What's going to happen the next time someone sees the Virgin Mary in a fucking stain? Every local news station is going to be out. That shit's going to be on CNN. We still do this shit. Oh, absolutely. Jesus in a dog's butthole, I think, was the most recent uh, reincarnation (laughs) of Christ. But it was a big deal because they said the difference is that because he talked to God. Like, Mm -hmm. it wasn't just some angel. He talked to the main man because Joseph Smith's whole thing, which came from his parents, was being like, I could learn more about life from taking a Bible and being alone in the woods for an hour than I can from any one of these worldly books. And so he would go out there and he was immediately a fucking John McCain maverick. Well, the thing is that Fawn Brody poured through the local newspapers at that time because Fawn Brody was like an old school researcher. I mean, us, like, you know, people say like, oh, your research, we just Google shit and we read books. So she was looking at microfiche. This was before microfiche. Oh, I don't think there was a world before (laughs) microfiche. Fawn Brody was looking through boxes, archives of newspapers. Like she, she was doing like old school on the ground research, but Fawn Brody couldn't find a whiff of Joseph's vision. Oh. Despite finding... All kinds of reports of visions around that time. And Mormon leaders say that's because his vision had an anti-establishment message. Super okay. fucking punk, dude. Yeah. Okay, very cool. But there were plenty of other dudes at that same time, in that same place, who had the exact same type of vision. One of these guys was named Asa Wild. And Asa claimed that God said pretty much the same thing to him. Asa also said that God actually told him a lot of other stuff, but God had also forbade him from telling people about it for free. Yeah. That's smart. That's smart. And if you want to know about it, Asa would soon publish a pamphlet relating all of God's new revelations in due time. And guess what? I'm going to sell it to you cheap, bro. So you go, yeah. So that's a What's Up, Small Wildings. Make sure you like and subscribe because next week I got that fucking publishing, that pamphlet. It's straight from Jesus Christ and he's going to tell you how to play basketball. Ooh, cool. I want that one. But during that period, it seems like Joseph Smith was a lot less interested in what the church was doing. He was actually much more interested in treasure hunting, Ooh. which was at that time called money digging, which we would now call grave robbing. 
Well, I'm. I mean, that seems. Man, when you say it like grave robbing, that sounds bad, like very well, Ed Gein esque. But honestly, that's where pe- people were getting buried with all of their cash, with all of their treasure. So you got to get it. What do you mean you got to get it? This is a very it's funny like way he views life. Yeah. Where you legitimately think that dead people in their caskets with their heirlooms are like little banks that you can go <laughs> hey, and man, withdraw from. It ain't doing any good next to a corpse. That's you all think, I'm saying. You think that I could go. To Greenwood Cemetery, not anymore. Right now, you could. I could go right not now, and legally. it would be fine if I dug up a corpse, somebody's nana. If you got permission took- by their granddaughter, <laughs> yes. I think everything's fine as long as you don't get caught. Mm, everything. Not everything is fine if you don't get caught because it doesn't exist. The crime does exist. If they can't catch you. But money digging was both. That was like. 75% of it. And then also it was like, cause at the time there were a lot of like indigenous people, artifacts left behind, all that kind of shit where they would just go dig. And a lot of them would be like, you would get paid to go and search for treasures that you might just be making up that they exist. But you will get, you will get haunted. I'm not saying you won't get haunted, but, uh, <laughs> well, Joseph Smith was none too keen on becoming a farmer and seeing how, and you know, and like he sat there and watched how hard his dad had to work on their fucking rock farm just to get a tiny bit of profit. Mm-hmm. So Joseph decided he'd get in on the new treasure hunting fad that was getting more and more popular. Oh, it's very interesting how you became a podcaster, Mr. Marcus Parks, uh, as I've your been, father we broke started his this bones. Uh, I have been in broadcasting for almost 20 years, sir. I oh. know we're so old. We got a very <laughs> sweet letter from a, from a listener the very, other day. Yeah, very sweet letter from a listener out in College Station. Thank you very much for writing a letter. It was very sweet. Thank and she you. said, she said, oh, I'm like a 21-year-old college student. No, she's an 18-year-old college yeah, student. Yeah, and she was like, I just can't believe I get my entertainment from three middle-aged men. And it was like, <laughs> that's... Yeah. 36 that, years old. We're ahead. not yet middle-aged. <laughs> I don't know when it starts. I'm 38. You're supposed to die at 76. I think I'm middle-aged. Not 45. That's an awful... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I'll be 39 and holding for a while, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, Jim. <laughs> well, at that time in western New York, what they called money digging was actually a pretty lucrative business, which owed mostly to the fact that western New York was covered with the burial mounds of the indigenous peoples of America. Horrible. And although one might argue that this isn't all that different from certain branches of archaeology, you know, at least the archaeologists make some pretensions toward a quest for knowledge, a quest for history. And they have little uh, paintbrushes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what makes it different. Yeah, but also, absolutely. Remember also at the time, the indigenous people were viewed as little above animals. Yes. Mm. So they did not hold any of their lands to be sacred. So they thought yeah. that that shit was just theirs for the taking. And yeah. I actually had a chance to interview Barbara Bassett. She's a Native American congresswoman out of Montana on oh. this week's Able Against Top Hat. And we get into indigenous people and the struggles that they still go through. So give that a listen. Nice. Well, in the case of Joseph Smith and his ilk, it was nothing more than digging up mass graves and sifting through dozens of corpses to find stone and copper artifacts. And in some cases, a little bit of silver, all for the purposes of profit. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that within 12 miles of the Smith farm, there were no less than eight of these burial mounds. Wow. And in those burial mounds, Joseph Smith saw a way out of rock farming. And of course, Joseph Ugh. Smith was not the only one. A whole cottage industry sprung up around treasure hunting at the time, with the best treasure hunters including a certain air of magic and mysticism. Now, it started as, I think that it starts both as just straight up traditional folk magic, mm-hmm. which has been a part of our society since the beginning of the beginning of our culture. We have been into some level of either uh, it's, it's ritual mixed with 
uh, the, the improved rituals, mm-hmm. eventually, like, realizing, like, I can add, like, twists to this. Sometimes this magic does work. Sometimes it does not. Sometimes it is just for show. Sometimes it's just for sale. But it's been around forever. And what will eventually, these are the types of things that would coalesce into what eventually become known as right and left-hand path magic. Mm. These guys are doing the very beginnings mm. of it, which is very similar to the way that Anton LaVey also did magic, where it's straight up halfway showmanship salesmanship and actual belief systems that they use that they say this will help us find money in the ground and Mm -hmm. i think that was the philosophy rodney dangerfield used when he was still selling vacuums door to door (laughs) showmanship it's all about that but what a depressing time in many ways for our country we forget how fortunate in in many ways we are to be born in this era Mm -hmm. because a step up from his profession, from the profession of, of uh, uh, rock farming, is grave digging. Yeah. So he yeah. was like, "I'm moving on up. <laughs> I'm going that. to the graves." But if they had made the proper, they'd made the proper decisions about where to move. They actually had went to the frontier. There was money to be made. If maybe Joseph Smith had like went to school, he could have found another trade. He could have done all these things. I think grave robbing was a choice because it was easy, and Joseph Smith was a natural born con man. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, you had to be a con man in order to be good at the job. Yeah. Sure. You know, one of the best treasure hunters at the time in Palmyra, New York, was a vagabond fortune teller whom we only know as Walters. This is fucking sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Just two left shoes. (laughs) And Walters styled himself as an actual wizard roaming around upstate New York with the sole purpose of finding buried treasure. Cool. Oftentimes, a farmer would pay Walters $3 a day to find treasure on the farmer's land. And this guy showed up. He had all the merch. He had crystals. He had mineral rods. He had stuffed toads. And all these things were accoutrement to help him find buried treasure. Okay. All right, now. Let us see what the sacred stuffed toad says about where the gold is. Now, Jumpy? Jumpy, are you there? Yes. <laughs> ah, Jumpy, I'm so glad to see you back from the afterlife. It's gold in the afterlife. Uh-huh. Shut up, Jumpy. We need to get to work. Where's the gold at, Jumpy? Where's the gold? It's outside. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Give me three dollars, please. Walters even had what he claimed was an ancient Indian record that described the locations of hidden treasures in a strange tongue that only Walters could read. Mm. And Walters would read this aloud to followers. He had all this shit written out. Uh, And these guys, they oohed and they awed. Oh, how exotic. I've never heard anything like it. Uh, But then a newspaper editor heard Walters reading, and the reporter quickly figured out Walters, he was just reading Latin. It was an old version of Cicero's oration. Yep. <gasps> oh! <laughs> Honestly, if you want to demystify anyone, just think of them with a, with a case of the runs like Jeff Daniels in Dumb and Dumber. Just remember they all have at some point grabbed their stomach and been like, oh, shit, oh. I definitely always think about that when I see the Sports Illustrated shoots with the supermodels. So no, oh, yeah. Like, no, they're all like super sexy out there, but I know that most of the time they're just getting fucking crazy diarrhea from Island <laughs> But when Walters left Palmyra, the mantle of local treasure hunter was taken up by none other than Joseph Smith. And he, just like Walters, had a sense of ceremony and theater when it came to treasure hunting because he had to sell it. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in this scenario because there were so many fucking characters. Mm -hmm. And Joseph Smith watched an old school con man do his job. And he was like, with just amount of pluck. 
I can go out there and do the same thing he does, but better because I'm young and I got these new pantaloons. Yeah, he's like 18 years old around this time. Okay. Now, Smith told one neighbor that a chest of golden watches was hidden somewhere on his land. And in order to find it, they had to stick a bunch of stakes into the ground and march around those stakes with a sword drawn to, quote, guard any assault which his satanic majesty might be disposed to make. It's oh. straight up magic. Yeah. It's straight yeah. up a magic it's ritual. ritual. You ritual. just brought me into a really dark memory of when I was at GNFC, Good News Fellowship Church School, in third grade. They were building a new school. So we all made wooden swords, put scripture on it, and then for one hour a day, we would walk around chanting like we were, Ugh. I think the, I forget the name, the Fellatios, whatever the <laughs> hell the name of this weird tribe they would do it in the Bible. And it's like, it was the exact same thing. And that was 1991. Yeah, yeah dude, that's right-hand path magic. Yeah, it's disgusting. Doing. And of course, well, it's not the way that they. I should have been learning, is yes, what I'm saying. Yes. Like science would have helped. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, they found no watches, but that didn't stop Smith from telling another neighbor that he had some money buried somewhere on his farm, <gasps> and the location could only be revealed through ritual. In this case, Smith claimed that they could find the treasure only if they cut the throat of a black sheep and led it around in a circle while it bled to death, which would appease the evil spirit guarding the treasure. Oh, yeah, that won't lead to just an immense amount of curse. <laughs> no, dude, you get all the blood out of it, and then you have mutton. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Well, as it turned out, the farmer had enough sheep where he could just kind of let one go to satisfy his curiosity, because the farmer was like, yeah, yeah all right, yeah, let's, you know what? Let's just see you do it. Let's they see were you just, try it out. This is all boredom. Yeah, they were just like, all right, fine. It's all boredom. It's uh, like, yeah, let's see. Yeah, I could see it bleed. <laughs> this is the one sheep I don't like. It keeps trying to nip my dick when I'm out there. I know it's trying to do it. I don't know if it's trying to make me gay even with its sultry form or whatever it is, but I'll tell you what, you get this the hell out of here because I'm um, sick of being tempted. But I'm being full of sheep. Right from your grave. Well, Smith told this farmer that some mistake had been made during the bleeding and the location of the treasure remained unclear. And the farmer's just like, yeah, okay. Honestly, I just think about the beaches of Florida with everyone with their metal detectors, but just going with sheep that are bleeding. (laughs) Just grabbing them by by their back legs and just walking the bleeding sheep. Nope, nothing today. But really, Joseph's money-digging career really got off the ground when he started using what is known as a seer stone because Hmm. there were really only so many graves to rob and the business had to expand somehow. Honestly, I'm still somewhat hazy on how seer stones work. Now, at first, I imagined that it was a stone with a hole in the middle and when you look through the hole, you see whatever it is that you're supposed to see. Well, there's many types of seer stones. A lot of times it's like you can use what they end up saying mm-hmm. that Joseph did use was a solid rock. But it's a, a shiny times, rock. That's what a seer stone is, a shiny rock. It's a shiny rock or it's a piece of quartz. And a lot of people use in the Bible, a lot of times they talk about how many people used a glass of water or a glass of wine, a clear glass so they could see through it. Mm-hmm. But the seer stone is, uh, uh, I'm not going to say a fraud, but I am going to say you're supposed to, it's something there. You choose your adventure with how you use it. The seer stone tells you how to use it, Marcus. Sounds like a kaleidoscope. It's a crystal ball, essentially. It's like you stare and you stare and you stare, and eventually the reflections reveal whatever it is that you're looking for. And as Henry said, like everyone has their own method. They have their own way for using a seer stone. And Joseph's way of using the seeing stone. And by the way, this is official. This next part, this is official Mormon history because Joseph did eventually use the seeing stones for other purposes. His method was to drop the stone in a white stovepipe hat and then shove his face in the hat hole to block (laughs) out all the light, and then he'd see what needed to be seen 
in the darkness. It's like one of those old uh, when they would show like scantily clad, scantily clad ladies that would that would show their knickers off. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, like those. Uh, there's a great in, in San Francisco. One of the cool things is the old school arcade. Yeah, over so you can wharf, go yeah. jam your face into and just realize that that used to be a porno booth. And there would just be guys <laughs> like really getting into it. Oh yeah, it's also Lincoln used to do this. He called it stovepiping. Oh. What he'd do is he'd have a woman stick her face into one of his hats, right, and bend forward, and then when he made love to her, he could pretend that she was a man. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Although later, Joseph would use this technique to, quote-unquote, translate the Book of Mormon, which we'll cover in episode two. Back then, Smith was using seeing stones to see ghosts, infernal spirits, and mountains of gold and silver. Cool. But not everyone in Palmyra saw the Smiths in a positive light for their money-digging endeavors. It was not the most respectable job in the world. Okay. In 1824, Joseph's brother Alvin died of an overdose of calomel, which was a purgative made of chlorine and mercury. Jesus oh Christ. my, yeah, well, that's... You just drink anything. anything. Wow. Yeah. Now, by this time, Joseph's father had also gone all in on the money-digging game because even his father had been convinced that Joseph Smith had these magical powers, and the Smiths had reputations as grave robbers and frauds. So, after Alvin died, the townsfolk decided to play a little prank, starting a rumor that someone had exhumed Alvin's body. Oh yeah, see how you feel when yeah. someone digs up your family and goes looks for looks for treasure in your fucking son's mm-hmm. body. Yeah, yeah, jokes on them. We just buried him next to a bunch of a duke. <laughs> The rumor picked up so much steam that the Smiths actually started believing it. They couldn't get it out of their head. Mm-hmm. So eventually, they dug up Alvin's grave to make sure his body was still there. And Alvin was just like, thank God you guys came. I've been alive this entire time. Turns out the chlorine really worked. Do you know what's in there? It's stuffy in there. Yeah, it's stuffy. <laughs> and sure enough, the body was there. No one had dug up Alvin's grave. And the reason why we know about this whole episode is because after they did that, Joseph Smith's father actually spent money to buy an ad in the local newspaper, ran it for a full week just to tell the whole town what a bunch of ha-ha assholes they were. <laughs> I love this. This nerdy form of fighting, yeah. this pre-internet yeah, that he uh, trolling is so great. He posted it to his Facebook wall. Yes. <laughs> you guys think you're so big with your rumors and all that shit. Well, I had to pay a man to dig up my own son yeah. this weekend. And I tell you what, there are just some things that cross a line. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are the townsfolk, you're like, yeah, dude, they just fucking dug up their own son. <laughs> It was around this time that Joseph Smith supposedly had another vision. Mormons claim that on September 21st, 1823, Joseph Smith was visited for the very first time by an angel <gasps> named Moroni. 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 I I'm think not it's Mor- sure. Moroni. It's, it's, it's Italian not, for no, idiot. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> Moroni. Like, it's not, <laughs> hey, I'm Moroni. I'm the angel. What do you want? Spaghetti or ravioli? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What's ever got to do? Got to carve up for a marathon? Or you just being fit? <laughs> My name's Moroni. I'm the angel of pasta. <laughs> wow. Oh, I love that angel. Moroni, I love you. They are. Uh, this is obviously. This is now the core of Mormon belief. Yes. Okay. Now, what would do we do know? That none of this shit was talked about until Joseph Smith wrote his autobiography in 1938. None of this was actually set. None of these dates mm-hmm. were set. So recent, man. So recent. Yeah. The story goes that Joseph was praying after the rest of his family had gone to sleep when suddenly the room grew as bright as daylight and a person appeared before him floating in the air. Hey, I don't. <laughs> With some garlic bread. I don't know what it is, but in here, I feel like 
family. That's what it's family. <laughs> hey, it's yeah. funny. It's like a garden filled with like pickled little things. Yeah, yeah like olives. <laughs> it's like an olive garden. <laughs> yeah. uh, when Joseph retold this story years later, he took a full paragraph going on and on about how the angel wore only a robe and was fully naked underneath, mm-hmm. noting that the robe, quote, was open so that I could see into his bosom. Hey, Joe. Okay. Hey, Joe, my eyes appear. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Stop looking at my beautiful tits as a man. It's just a chest. Are you, Unless, a, you like this? Are you an angel or a Hollywood producer? What's, uh... <laughs> well, let's see what uh, seat you sit in. You know what I'm saying? I don't. You know so... what I'm saying? It's like my lap could be a seat. <laughs> oh, yikes. Well, the being identified himself as the angel Moroni, and Moroni had been sent by God with a task for <gasps> Joseph. Moroni spoke of a book buried in the woods that was written on golden plates, and these golden plates gave an account of the former inhabitants of America, and those plates would tell the source from which these people sprang. (gasps) Furthermore, Moroni claimed that this book contained the everlasting gospel as delivered by Jesus Christ to the ancient inhabitants of America, lost these last 1,800 years. But Moroni told Joseph not to worry, because with these plates were two seer stones called Urim and Thummim, which (laughs) Joseph could use to translate the book, which would eventually come to be known as the Book of Mormon. My dearest Moroni, I don't mean to question your authority in any way, shape, or form, but maybe they could have been written in English <laughs> so that I could read them. I, no, no, but you don't get to do a fun like, translation thing, which is like a whole thing, because then you can hide it, whatever it says from everybody. That's incredibly smart. Good scam, Moroni. <laughs> Good scam. Uh-huh. And another thing that Moroni told Joseph was that Joseph was to never, ever, ever under any circumstances show the plates to anyone oh ever ever for as long as he shall live because if he did it would negate that whole blind faith thing Uh. that god is so big on well some sources do say and joseph went on to say is that if a if a person that was not allowed to look upon the plates looked upon them there they would die by like essentially they would explode the way he really? described them yeah, is I that remember you are, that episode of Antiques Roadshow. Head would explode. And so we'll see later on is that when he has the whatever these are wrapped in a sheet everywhere and his wife keeps trying to like look at him. Look at him. Mm-hmm. And like, you sure? <laughs> Emma, are you sure you want your brain to explode? Today? Interesting. And that went on to become the movie Scanners. <laughs> and after Moroni made this pro- proclamation, he ascended to the heavens. But as Joseph lay there, <laughs> but as Joseph lay there contemplating what had just happened, Moroni appeared again Whoa. and repeated everything he just said, and then he left again. Bye Here. bye. And then he came back and did it a third what? time. Hey Joey, what's going on? <laughs> he really does sound like an Italian waiter at Olive Garden. <laughs> so you good? You good? You good? good? <laughs> I could have more breadsticks and soup, please. I heard they're unlimited, and I am not fully limited yet. Hey, you don't want this against policy necessarily bring multiple servings at a time, but look at you. You're a big guy. You're a good guy. Come on <laughs> in and have some. You're always an angel to me. But Moroni also added a warning that Satan would try to tempt Joseph to sell the plates for a hefty sum. But Joseph had no other place in this tale but to glorify God. You are not to sell these golden plates. And the next night... Moroni came again and told Joseph, hey, you should probably tell your dad 
what's going on here. Okay. Let your dad in on all this. And when Joseph told his father, his father encouraged Joseph to go out to the wilderness and take a look-see at these plates. Well, also, in in the uh, in biblical terms and in magical terms, that the uh, there are, the covenant is not made unless something is done thrice. Yes. So he has to come three times, and that's how he knew. That's how Joseph <laughs> knew for a fact that yeah. this man, this this entity, was sent by God, and it was was for real. So Joseph went to the spot where he was told the plates would be, and Joseph started digging. And he soon hit upon a stone box, <gasps> and inside that box were the plates. The Urim and Thummim, and a, the breastplate of an ancient American. Now, what's fun is that, like, Rough Stone Rolling, uh, and they talk a little bit about in No Man's History, but no one really talks about the fact that before the, all of this story was created, he asked a dude to make a box for him. And he asked people, how do people go about digging through these mounds? Because he knew people were finding shit in the mounds, right? right. And they were doing so. And he would find their things every once in a while because mostly his game was to con people. He'd mm-hmm. pay right. money. And his job was to, essentially his job was just to search for treasure and sometimes find treasure. So he's just a producer of storage horse. Yes. He just, he planted everything. <laughs> I mean, technically, you know, Joseph Smith, that was kind of entertainment at the time. Like, yeah, super entertaining. What else yeah, do they bo- have? Yeah, you're bored as shit, and so you pay a fucking treasure hunter $3 a day to come tell you a bunch of stories, take you around your land, because your land is worthless, because that's the other thing, too, is that the people, he's also fucking over, he's fucking people uh, out of money, people who don't have money, because these are poor farmers who bought this worthless land at these high prices and they're like fuck maybe there's treasure this is like a last ditch thing maybe there's treasure on this land so joseph smith is also taking advantage of poor people playing on desperate uh, desperate people in desperate times now the story goes that the angel forbade joseph from taking the plates for a period of about four years because joseph had to go through a purification process before he could overcome his natural greedy impulse to just sell the damn things but he was like going out and checking them out like going out to the woods checking Mm. them out coming home going out checking the woods going home and it's time to be pure all right just remember this joey we got four years of this. All right, just drink as much coffee as we can. All right, uh-huh. yep. let me just do a couple sexy dances. <laughs> Got to really purify this Jiggle system. It out. I'll take some of this cod liver oil. Make sure every shit I take counts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the cod oil. My parents had a they had a love for cod uh, fish oil. Ugh. Don't know why, but. Well, in Joseph Smith's autobiography, Joseph doesn't really talk about the years 1823 to 1827. Most likely, the reason why Joseph didn't write about those years was because he spent those four years fucking gullible farmers out of money under the guise of treasure hunting. That was when he was biggest in treasure hunting. That's when he started going regional. So he's just sitting there writing. He's like, you know. You know, let's do a yada yada yada. Yeah. Let's yeah. do a yada 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 yeah. here. Well, so this time he's hanging out with Maroney, and they're eating a lot of <laughs> pasta. It's yeah. him and his daddy going out to the mounds, having a good time. He's building this legend as he goes, mm-hmm. slowly but surely, adding to it, mentioning stuff, showing more and more people his like ability to scry and see the future. And so his con game was just getting strong. He went to con college for four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of those money-digging expeditions in particular involved an elderly farmer named Josiah Stowell. And Josiah asked Joseph to come south 
to look for a lost silver mine in the Susquehanna Valley. Because oh. I just had it. You just yeah, had it? I had it when I just had it, and you turned around, and I lost the whole damn mine. You lost an entire <laughs> silver mine. Yeah. Hmm. I would love for an old man named Josiah to come at, like, let's go look for the lost silver mine Dude. down in Susquehanna Valley. If someone kicked down our door with an eye patch and told us that, we would all, we would stop recording immediately and just go do it. Boys, our destiny is here. Let's go treasure hunting. <laughs> so they went down to Harmony, Pennsylvania and boarded with a man named Isaac Hale, who at first Isaac Hale was into it. He helped finance the exp- expedition, but Isaac Hale pretty soon saw through Joseph Smith's bullshit and got disillusioned with the whole thing. But this chapter of Joseph Smith's life is really only important for the inclusion of Isaac Hale's daughter, mm-hmm. Emma Hale, hmm. who would become Joseph Smith's wife, or at least his first wife. Okay. Now, at first, Emma scorned Joseph as a, quote, careless young man. He's careless, and I, oh, I hate him. I hate his style. Mm-hmm. But... And she thought he was, quote, very saucy. Very saucy, Ooh. which means ca- cap, slip. It just means a man whose hat is slightly to the left, Ooh. like a little tilted, which yeah. means he likes to eat ass. Ooh, saucy. <laughs> but encouraged by the old coot Josiah, Joseph kept courting Emma, and eventually... Joseph won Emma's heart. Dude, because she couldn't stand all the dudes she was around, and Joseph Smith blew her mind. It was mm-hmm. the first time she met a person that was charming. Yeah. And so he rolled in, and he's a flim-flam man at the height of his young powers. Like, right. before you would become the pious, because the, that's when, now he's in more of his trickster phase, mm-hmm. whereas he would slowly, gradually, truly turn into Paul Dano, the quiet, unassuming prophet that only knows, who's mm. burdened by his truths. At that time, he meets the, she meets this young dude who's fucking full of vinegar. Is yeah. Paul Dano your MCM, your Man Crush Monday? <laughs> uh, no, it just, it, it's the example of that because that's what it is. It's this Paul fainting... Da- Paul Dano from There Will oh, Be of course. Blood. No, yeah. I know, I know. So it's him, like, it's all about how, like, it's all a burden. Decisions yes. are a burden. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, he was, you know, he was riding high at this point, but... He took it a little bit too far down there. Uh, And before he could get married to Emma, Joseph was arrested for the first, but certainly not the last time, uh, for being a disorderly person and an imposter. Can I get arrested for that? (laughs) I'm really, really afraid of that. If you become a treasure hunter and start telling people that you could find treasure on their yes. land uh, I don't know. and they pay you for that, then yes, you could. Honestly, if Henry moves out to the Midwest, he would because <laughs> when we were on our Midwest tour, which was amazing, for some reason... You aggravated everyone. And it was. <laughs> oh, the, people got a People bit, just. Not our fans. No, not no, our fans. No, 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 no. No, just random people were just like looking at you like, you're not from here. And, and you I, saw me. You know I was being good. I was on really good You behavior. were being fine. Like, no. I mean, it was just they just like had a reaction. No, it happens. That's why I'm never going back to Texas because that's the reaction people have me in Texas. Well, we'll be going back to Texas fairly soon. That's number one, why I'm never going to live in Texas. Ever ah. again. No, no, no. We're definitely going to be going back and doing shows in Texas, but that's why I don't live it. That's why. I I see. left Texas. But you can't get arrested just for having imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm asking. Uh, Roughstone Rolling mentions none of this shit. You know, they don't talk about Joseph's time getting arrested or anything like that. They actually say that Joseph met his wife while he was attending school in southern New York. <laughs> Quote, um, at school. But either way, the arrest and conviction was enough to scare Joseph out of the money digging business. He's like, I'm done with it. I'm okay. not doing it anymore. Uh, because pretty soon after that, he renounced the practice and eloped with Emma much 
to Emma's father's dismay. It was also part of the reason why he was allowed to elope to Emma, because he said, like, I'm out. Well, no, he wasn't allowed, because the, the father oh. did oh, yeah, not know right. at all. Oh. The father had no—they just disappeared one night and went back up to New York. Mm. And when they returned to pick up some of Emma's furniture and livestock eight months later, Isaac Hale— met them in tears. Aww. And according to the driver that brought Emma and Joseph to Pennsylvania, Isaac Hale said, quote, You have stolen my daughter and married her. I had, I had much rather have followed her to the grave. You spent your time in digging for money, pretend to see in a stone, and thus try to deceive people. Uh, so you approve of the marriage then? You're happy with it all? <laughs> I just wish you'd teach me how to wear a cap so jauntily so people would like me. And according to the driver, Joseph responded by weeping and acknowledging that he could not now, nor could he ever see with a seeing stone. <sighs> And that every pretension he had to seeing treasure or anything else was a total lie. Was her father Dr. Phil? <laughs> he just got, he straight up broke him. But I'll tell you what, Mr. Hale. After what you just told me, oh, I'm a changed man. Mm. I'm a changed man. That's enough flimflammery for me. Oh, yeah. That's enough chicanery. I heard. For Joseph Smith. That's right. Oh, from now on, I'll lead a clean, clean, pure life of yeah. just making sweet rock and love to your daughter. Okay, could have done without that last part, Joe. <laughs> well, he told, Joseph told Isaac Hale, it's like, yes, I, I have renounced money digging. I am now going to be... A farmer. I'm legit. I'm legit. He's going I'm legit. I'm legit. I'm, okay. I'm legit. I'm going to come work. I'm going to till the land. All right. And he did indeed give up money digging after that. Sure. What was he really going to become a fucking farmer? Because that sort of life was never going to work for Joseph Smith. And I totally get it. Just because you're a farmer's son doesn't mean you're cut out for farming. Oh, I could yeah. never be a rancher. Henry could never be a cop. You could never be a truck driver. I could be a truck driver. You could, you be, could a be a truck, truck driver. I take that back. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, the problem here is that it's hard to say exactly what Joseph decided to become instead. Some say that he decided to become a storyteller. Mm. And eventually, those stories just got out of hand. <laughs> How does a story just get out of hand? Like a slinky falling out of like, I mean, like, oh, 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 this one just got out of hand yeah, again. It does. No fault of my own. It's just out of hand. No, it's it's kind of like Dennis Nilsson, where that, like, all of the killing the dudes just kind of, oh, it's Whoa. just like, one day I was just, like, doing it all the time and not stop doing it, not stop lying, not stop kind of people. And then the next thing you know, I'm in charge of an entire religion. <laughs> this is out of hand. This is out of hand. Uh, others claim that Joseph Smith decided to be an even bigger charlatan than he was before, and he started weaving stories of increasing complexity in order to manipulate people into giving him their money, their land, and eventually their wives under the guise of religion. Mm. But if you listen to the Mormons... It's at this point that the revelations that Joseph Smith had experienced years before finally began to bear fruit. Ooh. For on September 21st, 1827, Mormons believe that Joseph Smith was finally able to bring the golden plates home. And the key is you can only bring one plate, so you just got to get all the biscuits at a bottom. Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and he put some ham like, on top Ooh, of the yeah, biscuits. Yeah, 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 yeah. You want to get some softer food. You get your mac and cheese on top of that. Oh, yeah, why not? And then yeah. a little bit more softer food. You get some cottage mm -hmm. cheese on top of that. And a little bit more softer food than that. You yeah. get some fruit on top of that. That's a great Mormon tower of food. Yeah. <laughs> and it was from these golden plates that Joseph Smith was able to transcribe the Book of Mormon. And that's where we'll pick back up for Mormonism Part 
two. Man, Woo-hoo! we aren't even at the Book of Mormon no. yet. This is great. That's where we're going to start next week. We're going right. to start with the Book of Mormon, the story of the two races that warred against one another in America, no. and how Jesus fits into it all. all also, right. the incredibly ornate belief system of Mormonism. Yeah. How, if you look at that in between the rituals, just literally the initiation rituals, and all the various things that they talk about, we're, we're going to see he, he stole so much stuff from Freemasonry <clears> and <throat> another occult world. It's, ah, it's very, very interesting. Cobbled together through various other places, and also just his own improv skills and his own storytelling skills. Very you know, like, interesting. Yeah, I mean, even the story of like the warring races... Like, like he took that from it's all taken from somewhere he just improvs yeah. and he uh, adds on to it. You say taken, I say inspired. Inspired, inspired no, by, sure. Really, no, it really there's pl- yeah, plenty of authors that are inspired by real life events and inspired by folk tales and folk stories and that's what Joseph Smith did. Yes, absolutely. The entire series of Stranger Things is basically inspired by Spielberg. Um, every Spielberg movie. Inspired. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that totally stolen. Influence. Uh, influence, yeah. yes. All right, there it is. Mormonism Part 1. Super fascinating. Thank you all so much for listening. And we are super excited to see you this weekend. We are in Atlantic City on Friday night. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania on Saturday and Portchester on Sunday. We have, because this tour is, as as Henry calls it, Gallagher 2, mm-hmm. uh, we have some tickets available. We have so tickets available. Remember, Portchester is 35 minutes outside of New York City. If you yes. hop on the metro and come up, I understand. No. Is it an exotic locale? <laughs> Are we going to Nassau? No, we're not. I understand. Portchester no. doesn't have like the ring that maybe you'd want it to, but... Portchester is a city that you get out of what you put into oh, it. Oh, yeah. what's that? Oh, our agents have called. They said, good job, Henry. Good job. <laughs> See? Yeah, say you live in northern Brooklyn like we do. It's about an hour, 15 minutes, door to door from your home <laughs> to Portchester, New York, yeah. where we're doing that. It's the Capitol Theater, Because, right? you know, yeah. if, 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 if one of my favorite entertainers was performing in Portchester, I would be on that train without a <laughs> doubt, would I not say... I live in New York already. Yeah. But no, I would be there. So come on out and see us in Portchester. It really will be a super fun show. And uh, as always, it's exciting to see you guys. Um, so we you love know. our people. We love our people. And honestly, you guys were so sweet. The Midwest tour could not have been better. St. Paul, um, Des Moines, and Milwaukee. And thanks for everyone who stayed around in Milwaukee for the Hail Yourself premiere. That really meant a lot to me. Super sweet. And the Paps Theater was a true dream come true. It was wonderful. Really awesome. And uh, apparently, it's extremely haunted, but with nice ghosts. Hmm. Uh, also, for our UK and European tour, yes. we still have some tickets left, I believe, in Bristol. Mm-hmm. And I believe we have some tickets left in Manchester. Ooh. But everything else is pretty much sold out. Yeah, I think we might be releasing uh, some tickets here soon. Uh, yes. Just like just a couple, not very many. So, yeah. yeah, go follow us on all the social bullshit. We'll announce on uh, we'll announce on either Twitter or Instagram or something yep. when those tickets are released. We and also we, have some more later. LP on the left. That's where we are. Yes, and we have more... Uh, we have more dates upcoming that are about to be released. Yeah. And I think that you guys are going to be very happy with them because we're going some places that people have been asking us to go to for many years. Yes. Many, many years. Yes. And of course, we've wanted to go to those places, but uh, we finally have the opportunity. Um, so thank you all so much for listening. Thanks for supporting all the shows here on The Last Podcast Network. And folks, don't never forget, hail yourselves. Hail Satan. Yogin. Magustalation. Hail me. Let's go eat a bunch of food off those golden plates. It still tastes like blood. (laughs) This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. 
For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. <laughs>